it up. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Corrective Culture Podcast once again. Today, we have Mr. Keith Barr. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great. Man, yeah, we're, we're stoked to have you on. I was, I was just telling you beforehand, um, I actually first heard about you just through through Instagram and someone said, someone DM'd and said, oh, look into Keith Barr stuff. And so I just typed your name into the podcast and then just started listening to them all. And uh, it, it just gave such a cool insight for me personally, really just into like tendons and ligaments and just because everyone has a human body, so we can all relate. And like I was telling you before, you're you're really good at explaining to people something that's pretty complex in a in a way that makes sense. And it, you find the simplicity amongst the complexity, and it's it's cool. It's cool. You're good at it's great at great at um teaching. Thank you very much. It's it's something where you learn over years, and you learn especially when you're not very smart yourself, and you have to. You have to think of things in a very different way than everybody else thinks about it. So you come up with kind of different ways to try and explain it to people. So hopefully, hopefully it reaches more people that way and we can, we can make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's so many, um, so many cool little like concepts and tips that, that really, uh, help people, help people listening. So would, would you be able to just give us an introduction on, on really how you got into what you're doing and, and what you are doing at the moment? Yeah, sure. So. So I was like a, a really good but not great athlete in a bunch of different sports. So I played volleyball, I played basketball, I did all these things, and I was really good but not great. I wasn't good enough to go on to the next level. So I, and like many people who are in sports science, we go into sports science to try and figure out why we weren't good enough. Um, and so, so I went to the University of Michigan, and there I I got the chance to to be a strength coach with the with the University of Michigan football team. And these are, you know, American footballers. These are huge people and, and they're really strong. And, but we put them onto programs and some of them just like, they blow up into these massive individuals who are hugely strong and, and just like they weigh, you know, 150 kilos, 140 kilos. So they're just massive. And then other people, you put them on the same program and they don't get any bigger. They get strong, but they're, they're still at say, hundred kilos and they're eating like it's a job they're and so I was really curious as to why that was happening so I decided to try and go in and try and figure out why that was happening and so I went to did a master's in Berkeley I went back and did a PhD at University of Illinois in Chicago and there what I did is I used that experience as a strength coach to come up with an animal model that mimicked what we did in the gym and we discovered that you know what at a molecular level when I go all the way from the the whole organism down to the muscle, then down inside the muscle at these little, the smallest things that you can find, there's one protein complex called mTOR complex one, which is important in in the muscle growing. So when I did a resistance exercise bout for the rats that I was working with, I could have a prediction that that was incredibly precise as to how much the muscle would grow over six weeks just by measuring the activity of that one protein kinase after three to six hours. And so that was our first discovery of this molecular kind of regulator of muscle size. And so from there, after I got my PhD, I went down and worked with this guy, John Halsey. And John Halsey is this legendary guy because he, in 1967, was the first person to, dis- to show that exercise was actually good for you and it gave you more mitochondria. So the little energy energy generating component of your cell 
he showed that when you run for a while, you get more of these in your muscle. And then, but he had been working since 1967 trying to figure out what's the first signal, what, what's the earliest signal we can find. And so I went there as a postdoc, and what I discovered was there was a little gene that's called PDC1 alpha, and all it is is this little transcriptional cofactor. It's just this little kind of, if you think of it, it's it's a bit like some promiscuous friend that you have. So it goes around and it doesn't stick to one one different one individual. It goes to a lot of different individuals. And in that way, it can regulate lots of different things. And so what we found was that when you did endurance exercise, you increase this PGC1 alpha. And not only did you increase it, you actually made a different form that wasn't as easy to inhibit. So the reason that when we go out and we do our endurance exercise and we get more mitochondria, that's down to this, the first, one of the first signals is that we increase this PGC1 alpha. So, so, you know, I got lucky in a couple of places to be able to make some discoveries there. And then I started my first laboratory in, uh, in, uh, Scotland and there there's lots of footballing organizations and they wanted to get me in to talk about say how to increase muscle mass or how to increase muscle endurance and one of the things that I got a chance to do is go to British Cycling and they said oh you know what you say if you want to get stronger you need to be bigger but we've got 15 years of data that shows our cyclists get are stronger without getting any bigger and that made us start to think about how did how is that happening and how is it and it's probably in the transmission of the force or the transfer of the force from the muscle to the to the bone to produce the movement. So that's when we started looking at tendons and connective tissue. And then we've yeah. created all kinds of little things and ways that we can do that at a very at a very unique level. Well so you've you just created the gadgets to to measure force production from because I'm I remember hearing you talk about something about um because we've always thought it's muscle moving moving the tendon which moving the bone but it's more than that isn't it it's the whole fascial sort of network now absolutely would you be able yeah to there's a beautiful there's a couple of beautiful studies that show this one is from this old guy john faulkner that i got a chance to work with for a while and i see he's an old guy he flew spitfires in the in world war ii that's how not he's recently <laughs> passed away but that's that's yeah. the kind of level he was so so what he had done is his group had they took a little, they took a muscle and they attached the tendon directly to a force transducer. And then what they did is they, they got these plastic surgeons to go in and put a little ring around just the outside of the muscle and just sew it very delicately onto the outside of the muscle. And then they attached that to the force transducer. And so the way that we've been taught that a muscle works is that each of the sarcomeres shortens, each of the small bits shorten and the muscle gets shorter and that pulls the tendons closer together. So in this experiment, if that were the case, then when you have the tendon attached to the transducer, you should get a lot of force. But when you attach that ring to the, to the transducer, you shouldn't get any force. Well, what they found is they got at least 85% of the force at the ring. And what that meant is that when the muscle starts to contract, the force goes laterally and then it goes to the tendon. And that's really important in our understanding of muscle because each of our muscles is made up of individual fibers. And if each of those individual fibers worked on its own, then what would happen is when I lifted a lightweight, the way that I get less force from my muscle is that I only recruit a couple of muscle fibers. 
And so those muscle fibers would move and the rest of the muscle wouldn't move. But that's not what happens. What happens is even when I produce the lightest ginger, the tiniest little bit of force, the whole muscle contracts. And the way that's working is that the force isn't moving straight forward, only longitudinally. It yeah. connects to all the other muscle fibers so that when I produce a little bit of force, my muscle still shortens. And that's really important, not only for kind of how the muscle works, but how we protect each fiber. And a lot of our diseases in the muscle, what actually happens is it's not that there's a problem with the muscle fibers. It's a problem with the connection between them. So muscular dystrophy is a, is a really, you know, it's not common, but it's a, something that people know about. And what it is, is your muscles start to deteriorate really early. And what happens actually is that there's nothing wrong with the muscle fiber on its own. What happens is it's not connected to all of its neighbors. So now when I produce a little force, I get one, one muscle fiber contracting and the rest of the muscle doesn't. And as that happens, what it's going to do is it's going to slide all over the place relative to the rest of the fibers. And that's going to produce holes. They're going to let calcium in and that's going to cause the fiber to degenerate. And that's unfortunate for muscular dystrophy kids. But then when we look at ourselves and everybody else in the population, the exact same thing is happening as we get older. And one of the things that I always hear from athletes when they get to their mid thirties, you know what? I do the same workout, but the next day I'm, I'm more sore and it takes me longer to recover. And all that's happening, there's nothing wrong with that athlete. All that's happening is that each of those individual fibers that are supposed to be connected through this array of matrix, now they're becoming separated. They're not as connected. And so now they get a little bit of the sliding that you would see in those kids with muscular dystrophy. They get more injury, absolutely, because they're getting sliding. One of the things that we get as we train is the fibers don't slide relative to each other. And so now when we do an exercise, there's less pain associated with it because we don't have that same pain because our fibers are stuck together really well. They're working together as a team. You know, I always say yeah. that it's, it's a lot like sardines in the ocean. If you're one sardine in the ocean, you're just a snack. So what do you do? You go together with 30,000 other sardines and the likelihood of you being the sardine that's the snack goes way down. When we connect all of our muscle fibers together, the injury to any one muscle fiber is decreased. Well, and so that's really important as we think about our muscles as we age and as we have all these changes. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And, and what is it about the aging process that's that's causing that? Is it repetition or is it something else? So, so there's a little bit of so from what we can so we did some work a while ago where we where we looked at just dystrophin levels because we're seeing this similar phenotype the kids with muscular dystrophy have this issue older people have that issue we did some work there's a guy um, down at ucsd who's done beautiful work on this and what you see is as you get older the levels of dystrophin in your muscle goes down if you have an inflammatory disease type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes or heart disease or other things that cause muscle wasting you actually see that dystrophin levels go down. If you do things to decrease inflammation in the body, you actually see that you can recover some of that dystrophin. And so what he's done is he's used polyphenols in his work. So he uses um, epicatechin-enriched cocoa as a way to treat individuals who are 
older individuals who have heart disease or type one or type two diabetes. And he's got a couple of really cool papers where he took people who were really not doing physically very well. He measured their VO2 and it was minuscule. He then put them on epicatech enriched cocoa. So all they did was drink, you know, they drink cocoa in the morning, you know, about one milligram per kilogram per day of epicatechin. And, and so what he then did is he did that for about eight weeks and he had them back into the lab and he took biopsies when they first went in and then when they, when they came in later. Just by drinking the epicatech enriched cocoa, these people who were diseased, had these inflammatory disease, were advanced muscle loss, they actually increased their VO2 max about 25% without doing any exercise at all. And when he looked at the electron micrographs of the muscle, the muscle went from being totally disorganized and disarrayed to being beautifully organized and arrayed muscle. So it looks like when we have kind of the, the classic issues of modern life where we're overeating or we're doing things and we're getting these inflammatory responses, that one of the things our body does is it loses this protein dystrophin, which is so important for our muscles to work well. And this is one of the really challenging things when we take individuals who are in a situation where they have diabetes or they have heart disease or they have other things that, for a long time. And now they're like making that decision, look, I really want to get healthier. What they're going to find is that first that first transition back to it is extraordinarily difficult because their muscle is actually much more like a dystrophic boy's muscle than it would be like a healthy muscle. And so as they go back to doing any activity, their likelihood and the rate of injury that they get early on is very, very high. And so it can become very frustrating for them. So that's where you have to think about maybe incorporating some diet, incorporating some early changes, and then really slowly progressing them towards actually getting back into the activity. So is, is cocoa, what cocoa did you say it was again? Yeah, it's called, it's just natural cocoa. Okay. And so anything that's not Dutch processed or alkalized. Okay. Which is a little bit difficult for me because I'm in Holland. So all the cocoa here is Dutch processed. And so, <laughs> yeah. so I have to go, I have to go <laughs> to very special stores to get natural cocoa because the, the alkali actually kills the polyphenols and the polyphenols are the good component of the cocoa. Cool, it makes yeah. it look gorgeous. It makes my, it makes a chocolate mousse look incredible, Yeah, but it takes away all the health benefits. Yeah. And what, and what else, what else would you say would be like amazing for, for that, to stop that happening or to increase your, um, you know, strength later in life? So, so some of it is just that as far as basic things, other things that are designed to, to decrease the inflammatory response. And so sometimes you can do that. You know, I know Sachin Panda does a lot of work with time-restricted eating where he can use time-restricted eating as a way to, to get periods where there's a little bit less, uh, and he sees markers of inflammation go down with his time-restricted eating. So, so there's a bunch of different things, actually, you know, in Australia, John Hawley's doing a lot of the time-restricted eating work where, where he's looking at what's the effect of, you know, taking in food at different times circadianly or with different spacing between it. So that's, that's one thing that people are doing a lot of. And the idea isn't that it's going to make your muscle bigger just by doing having cocoa or eating, you know, eating in a restricted time. What it's trying to do is it's trying to make an environment 
in which your muscle is now healthy enough to do the exercise that it's going to take in order to make the muscle bigger or make it more fatigue resistant. Because the thing that everybody grabs onto really tightly is a small dietary change. So when I talk about tendon, I talk about exercise for 85% of my talks about how you load a tendon, how you did this right. And then I say, and you could help to put a little collagen in your diet. And then everybody's like, oh, collagen in the diet. That's the only thing yeah, they take away. Yeah. The the key component is the is the is the exercise component because if I take the most perfect protein supplement in the world, if I don't exercise, it's not going to make my muscle bigger. Yeah. If I take the most perfect collagen supplement in the world, if I don't exercise, it's not going to get to my tendon. It's not going to make my tendon better. All of those changes that we're seeing are. 90% the exercise and 10% you're going to add a little bit by giving some protein or by giving some, some of the, some of the building blocks that you need in order to have the response that you want. Yeah. That's, a, that's amazing. And, it, and it's, it's cool here. And you, you make a scientific link between inflammation and the way our, our body works. Cause you can see it's so left behind from, from that point of view in even in professional athletes, like I see, I've I watched, Israel Adesanya. Do you know Israel Adesanya is the UFC uh, yeah. middleweight champion? And he yeah. was having ice cream the night of his weigh-in. And then, it, when, then there's, I'm sure there's better options, you know what I mean? Than when we think about it from an inflammatory yeah. perspective. Yeah, it. I'm sure that there, there's, yeah, again, whether how much that's going to be a problem for him, it's going to be yeah. probably really small. At that point, he's been so restricted for so long. That that's kind of the the liberation. I know that when we had been doing some work with um, with Bradley Wiggins ahead of the Tour de France and then the the London Olympics, you know, part of what we part of what our research showed was that if you want to have muscle regeneration and recovery, one of the things that we know you need is you need that protein we talked about mTOR complex one, which is important for growing the muscle. What mTOR complex one does is it actually is absolutely fundamentally required for both inflammation, but also for, it's also required for regenerating muscle. So if you damage your muscle, you absolutely need mTOR complex one in order to fix it. And so we had, we had given him the evidence and he had basically gone off alcohol for just a hugely long time. And then if, I don't know if you remember 2012 when the London Olympics happened. He, he had just won the Tour de France. He comes in, wins a gold medal at the Olympics. And he was like, there were pictures of him in every newspaper for the next six days going out and just drinking everywhere. <laughs> and part of it is is human nature. You've done so much. You've sacrificed so much that at a certain point, you're just going to like, yeah, true. the dam is going to break and you're going to just go bang and everything is going to happen. So, I know a lot of people who have done the the restrictive eating to make weight, and then they're just they're like, "Oh man, I just need this." Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it's 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 cool hearing you talk about because we both do jujitsu, and we we do a lot of it. And man, like ligaments, tendons, ligaments go on every week. <laughs> my my last jujitsu comp I did my LCL, you know, um, and and I was actually listening. That's probably what sent me down your path, listening to so much of your stuff. And I really, I just loaded up on gelatin, um, but th that's a that's a bit of a segue, unintentional segue actually. But mm -hmm. when when we talk about say ligaments versus tendons, and and the, I guess the rehab concept of, of such a passive structure structure like a like a ligament, 
And what's sort of the general protocol? Obviously, we're talking about the gelatin, the collagen stuff, but but from a loading perspective, is there something special that you use for ligaments over sort of the isometrics with the tendons? No, it's it's just how you get into the position where you're going to get an isometric. So, so just to just to give background, because I don't know if everybody will understand this, what we've shown a um, is that when you have a tendon injury or when you have a partial ligament injury, what happens is these structures are extraordinarily dense connective tissues. And so when I have an injury, what my body's going to do is it's going to produce the same thing that uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that I'm, I'm not a great chef. I got like a little, one of those mandolin things where you go and you start cutting. Yeah. The vegetable. <laughs> I cut off my baby finger, the tip of my baby yeah. finger. Right. So naturally everybody does that. Right. The first time. So what happens, my body is going to produce what we call a fibrin gel, so or what everybody else calls a scab. And so all it is, is it's this long process that ends up with this prothrombin being cut into this thrombin, which cuts fibrinogen and makes fr a fibrin gel. Same thing happens in our tendons and ligaments when we have any kind of damage. We're, there's going to be this response where we're going to make a little bit of a, a light gel like fibrin, but it's not nearly as strong as a collagen gel. So if, if you have a scab and you pull on your skin, near the scab, the scab is going to fail before the skin does. Okay. But the reality is that unlike, and we see this in our skin as well, all of us probably have a little bit of an area of us, of our skin where when we were a kid, we were running, we were jumping over like uh, barbed wire fences, like all kids do. And you got a, you got a deep scratch and you still have the scar. So why do we still have that scar when the rest of our skin looks really good? Everything is smooth other than this scar that you got when you were 12 or whatever. And a lot of it is because the load that's supposed to go through that isn't going through the area where you have the scar. It's going around it. And that's normal and that's ideal because the reason that that works that way is that if I have a partial tear of my tendon and I'm trying to run away from some animal that wants to eat me, it's going to, if I have a tendon that doesn't work great, but works okay, that's going to be way better than being eaten. And so what our body does is it, if we injure our tendon, the ligaments, our skin, instead of the load that normally goes through that, going through it, it's going to go through the stiff part around it. And yeah. so I give an example, like if I have a little tiny string and I pull on the string, a piece of thread, it's going to break really easily. But if I have a piece of string and then I put a wire beside it and I pull on it even twice, three times as hard, I know that that little tiny piece of string isn't going to break because I've got this big, strong piece of wire right there. You guys are jujitsu people. You're probably a kid who maybe was the bigger kid and somebody, you know, there was always that little mouthy kid who got, who was your friend who get into trouble and then they run behind you. Same kind of thing. It's the same yeah. concept. The big, strong individual is protecting the little, or, the little or less strong individual. Okay, so if we have a system like that, then what we get is we get that little, that little scar that we get in our skin. And the reason we get the scar is because it's not getting load. Because even though it's good that it prevents catastrophic injury, if I don't get load through that, it's never going to give me normal skin again. So that's why I don't get scars on the tips of my fingers because we're always loading them and we're always doing things. But if I get down further, so I've got, I, I almost cut off my finger down in here at this uh -huh. little piece that's in between. And that's not a part that gets stretched very much. It can, it, it gets skinnier 
and it but it doesn't really stretch and so if you look at it there's still a scar there and it's always going to be there because it doesn't have to go through this loading constant loading and so what we what we what we know is that if i don't get load through there i'm going to have a scar the only way that i can get load through a tissue or through any, through my skin through my tendon through my ligament is by using some of the biochemical biomechanical properties of that and we all know this, you guys know this because you do jujitsu. If you're going to go into a pose and you're going to hold a pose for a long time, it gets really hard to do, say, like a quarter or a half squat with one leg and hold that position for a long period of time. And the reason is that what, when you get into that half squat, your tendons start to relax. They go through a, physio, a, a biomechanical process called stress relaxation where the liquid goes out of them and they actually stretch further. So the strong part of the tendon begins to relax. As that happens, if there's any weak parts to the tendon, the weak parts start to get load and that's how we fix tendons. And that's what you were referring to. So we do the same thing for a ligament. Instead of doing it by contracting the muscle and holding the muscle, what we can do is we can put the joint into a position where there's load on the ligament. So if I say have an ACL issue, what I can do is I can go a little bit of knee over toe with my, with my foot for, with my one, the loaded leg forward, and I could just hold it in that position. And what'll happen over time is, yeah, it will begin to relax. The tendons and ligaments within the knee will begin to relax. And if you have a partial tear within there, it'll actually get low through that partial tear. And so what you're doing as you try and go through this and the and the only real hard part about this is trying to figure out exactly what tendon or ligament you're trying to load and what's the best way to load it. Once you figure that out, then it's all about, okay, 30 to 60 second load through there, bang, I'm going to hold that. I'm going to try and push hard to make there be a good strain on the tendon or ligament. And if I can get good strain on the tendon or ligament and hold it for, you know, anything over 20 seconds, now... I'm getting this process of stress relaxation. As the healthy part relaxes, the less healthy part, the weaker part, actually has to take up more of the load. Okay? The way I explain it is if if the Rock and I are, are having a uh, a if we're on the same team and we're having a we're having a tug of war with somebody, at the beginning, the other team doesn't even know I'm there because Rock is huge, he's pulling with all this huge amount of force. But if we give Rock really bad endurance and his strength goes down really fast, as we go longer and longer through that, through that, um, through that competition, now my role as to pulling on the rope becomes actually significant because as he's getting tired, more and more of the load is going to me and I have to take up that load. So in that case, I'm the scar, I'm the weak part. And so now I actually have to get the load. When I get the load, now I get a signal, and if I'm a cell within a tendon, a ligament, cartilage, bone, I get a signal that says, okay, this is where the load is. This is where you have to put your matrix, and this is the way your matrix should look. And what yeah. we get in tendons and ligaments is we get a directional load. And what that means is our cells actually rotate into the direction of the load, and they actually produce all of their collagen now in one direction, that direction of load. And that's why... If you look at a call, if you look at a tendon, all the collagen is aligned almost perfectly in a healthy tendon. In an unhealthy tendon, what you see is that you get good alignment and then there's areas where there's random alignment. And that's what we're trying to fix when we do these types of longer hold loads.
Wow. So, so when you think about, yeah. say, like like an MCL, and are, are you still are you would you put it under a slight medial translation of the knee? Absolutely. Subtle? Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to load. You're trying to keep the pain. And again, everybody knows themselves. They know their they know their um, their clients or their athletes well. There's some athletes where we say, okay, zero pain because they're, they have this mentality like, oh, nothing hurts me. And so it could be a, an eight out of 10 for a pain for me, for them, it's going to be a zero out of 10. So we tell those people zero out of 10 for pain. We've also got the people who you blow on them and they're in pain. So you, you could say, okay, a four or five out of 10 for them. But for most people, we say, keep the pain down around two or three. And what that means is that you should feel a generalized soreness, like like you have a muscle ache, but you shouldn't feel like a point tenderness. You shouldn't feel like somebody's stabbing you with an ice pick. If you feel anything where you can point to exactly where it hurts, that's where we want you to decrease the force going through there because you're, you're, that tissue is still not strong enough in order to take the full load. What we want to have is we want to have this feel of this general feeling like, oh, that feels like a tight muscle as I try and extend that or, oh, you know, maybe even the people who really like deep massage, they say, oh, that feels kind of good. That type of thing where you're getting that, that kind of feeling of tightness through there. So we don't want to have a medial translation and, and go into, into flexion and then have the person be like, oh yeah, I can stand this. And you just can tell that it's really painful. Yeah. What you want is you want it to be something where it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a reasonable thing, but we're getting load through there. Now we're going to keep it there. What you'll see over time is that that position will become that you'll get a little bit more bend in the knee. You'll get a little bit more medial translation over time because the, the ligament is actually starting to relax. And yes, we have had success. We had our first athlete who did a program like this, who had a partial tear of his ACL. He was a high school athlete, a quarterback in the United States who didn't have a scholarship yet so he had to keep playing to try and get a college scholarship so he didn't want to stop and have surgery so what we did is we did this type of loading with him a colleague of mine who was his his um his clinician we did that type of loading and it, and he was able to play the rest of the season and then at the end of the season when they did when they looked to see okay what's they were like okay we should do the surgery now they started doing the they started measuring the laxity of the knee and the laxity of his knee was no different than his uninjured other knee. knee. Wow. wow. So, so, that, so you, you can, you can have really good effects of being able to, to, if you can form a scar, a, a scab in there, we can actually manipulate that scab to try and get it back into, into native tissue. So, and, and for timing for periods between sessions and also timing of, is it how many say 30 second holds? Would you, would you be choosing? Yeah. So each tendon is going to be unique. So when we talk about things like the time, the time that we're doing something, if I have a right leg issue, I could do my right leg and then do my left leg and, and you could add them together. So what we're talking about here is the cells within each tendon seem to behave a lot like my teenage daughter. <clears throat> and what that means is that I give her. If I want her to understand something, I need to give her a very important message. I need to make it short. 
because by the time I get to maybe 30 seconds into when I'm talking to her, her mind's just wandering off into the more important things for a teenage girl. Yeah. I completely understand that. Our cells are the same way. Our connective tissue cells, like our tendons, ligaments, bones, cartilage, they seem to stop responding or they seem to stop getting the signal that we're exercising at about 10 minutes. So it seems like they, if we do, in our case, if we're doing 30-second holds, if we do four 30-second holds on a tendon with two minutes of rest in between, that's going to get us up to about eight minutes of loading. And by the time we get to about eight minutes of loading, we don't see a great benefit of doing extra loads. And in fact, we've done this. So we make these cool little ligaments in a dish where we take human ACL cells after people have ruptured their, their ACL. We reconstruct, we basically engineer a ligament in a dish. We then have these really cool little machines that we can do where we can exercise them as much as we want or as little. And what we've found is that if we do four um, by 30 second isometric holds on them, the ligaments actually get stronger than if they don't do any load. Right. But the interesting thing is if we do exactly the same amount of tension, so time under tension match, but we're doing the, a dynamic movement, the ligaments don't get stronger. They get a little bit more collagen, but it's not a stronger ligament. And we've actually done this in, in rats where we've, where we've injured the middle of the patellar tendon. And then what we've done is we've done either four isometric holds uh, of the quads, or we've done a time under tension match dynamic loading of 330 loads through the through the same tendon. And what we see is that in the scar, when we do the four 30-second isometrics, the genes that are associated with tendon go up. When we do the dynamic loading, what actually we saw was the genes that were associated with cartilage went up. And the reason is that as if the load isn't going through the scar, as I pull the tendon longer, because I'm pulling, shortening the muscle, the tendon has to lengthen. As the tendon gets longer, it gets skinnier. <clears throat> and as it gets skinnier, it compresses the scar. And as you compress any connective tissue cells, they actually start to become cartilage-like. And so yeah. what we find is, and you can see this on an MRI sometimes or on ultrasound, where if you go in and you take an image, you'll see water in the tendon. And what water in the tendon is, is usually that the cells have become cartilage-like. They make, as cartilage cells, they make lots of proteoglycans, which are just sugar proteins. And what they do is they are highly negatively charged and they draw water in. And that's why our cartilage is spongy, because these proteoglycans hold water and it's now a sponge. It's now going to give you some, some liquid in there to resist that compressive load. The same thing can happen inside our tendons where the cells get a signal, oh, we're being compressed, we need to make lots of proteoglycans. They make lots of proteoglycans, that brings in water. You can now see a hole on MRI or ultrasound. And so that's, that's kind of what we see more with the dynamic loads is you can get more of those cartilage markers. With those isometric loads, we not only increase strength, but we actually turn on the genes that are associated with the tendon. So we can actually regenerate that tendon core. Wow, yeah, man, that's 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 amazing. And is there is there like a let's let's say Achilles as as an example, like and you know the general sort of is calf raises, right? That's if you go to the physio down the road, you're gonna get calf raises. But no one's sort of I guess the tempo now, and now we're, we're thinking isometric. Is this the way it's sort of heading? And is it in the eccentric phase of the muscle or midway? No. 
So the standard of care is usually heavy, heavy eccentric loading. Okay. And that's the standard of care. But when they ever, whenever they say heavy eccentric loading, you guys both are athletes. You know that if you're going to do plyos, you're going to do death jumps or something like that. That's not what you do when they say heavy eccentric. But if I jump off a big platform that's 40 centimeters in the, up and I'm going to then accelerate and jump the other direction, so that's going to have a lot of eccentric load. Yeah. <laughs> they say, no, no, no. What we mean is heavy, slow eccentric. Yeah. yeah, right. And it's the slow component that's important. Because I can do the same cap raise, but do it at seven times the speed, <laughs> and I can actually damage the tissue more. Yeah. So the core of all of the exercises, when you look at all of the different programs and you don't have a, you don't have any skin in the game. So I, I didn't create any of the programs. I didn't originate isometrics. I didn't do anything. So I look at it from the outside and I say, okay, what works are really heavy strength training, heavy, slow, eccentric training. What's the similarity? When I move heavy weight, I'm always going to move it slow. When I move my tendons and ligaments slowly, I'm going to get stress relaxation to some degree. The heavier or the slower I go, the more I get. So that all we did was say, look, if it's the slow component that's important and it's this relaxation of the tendon to let load get through the, the injured part that's important, these are all going to work. But what's actually going to work even better is if we just let that have that isometric component. All of the different exercises work. It's just that when you look at their core, the core th thing that they're all trying to achieve is this stress relaxation where we're decreasing the stiffness of the healthy part of the tissue. Mm -hmm. If that's the truth, the most stress relaxation we get is when we do an isometric. And that's why we've kind of shifted towards the isometrics. Yeah. A really funny story with the with the the standard of care stuff is that it's called the Alfredson protocol because Alfredson was the guy who first did the the eccentric loading on the on the Achilles tendon. Mm. Apparently, he was this guy who was this Scandinavian, and he was he was suffering. He was a runner, he, suffering from tendon Achilles problems for years. And, and what he knew from being clinician was that <clears throat> the people who ruptured their Achilles actually got pain-free faster than the people who didn't rupture their Achilles. Wow. And that's true. And so what he did is he said, you know what? I'm going to rupture my Achilles. So I'm going to use really heavy weight. I'm going to do eccentric loads. And so he went about it to actually try and rupture his Achilles so that he could actually get a surgical repair to fix it and it wouldn't be painful anymore. And what he discovered was that by doing the heavy eccentric loads, taking as much weight as he possibly could and lowering it slowly, is that he actually didn't rupture his Achilles and the pain went away. Mm. And so that's that was the generation of the of the of the protocol. Wow. I never knew that. I yeah. love a good story. Um that's yeah, that's that's pretty cool. So and would you say then if it's in an eccentric position, it will bring the fibers together more? Is that is that the concept? So, so the, the position the position of the say say you have a knee pain and there's patellar tendon problem there you could always so the question always is do i do it with do i do my isometrics with a straight knee with a partially bent knee or with a really bent part of it depends on how advanced the 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 tendinopathy is because what we are all going to do as we go through these things is we're going to all compensate so what's going to happen is that the tissue around my 
my um my injured tendon is going to get bigger you maybe have seen this some people who have an achilles problem they have achilles tendinopathy and then suddenly like after a while you get this actual bump on the achilles and you can actually physically see that there's more tissue there and the reason that that happens is because there's two physical properties there's the mechanical properties which is how much load can the tissue take regardless of its size and there's the material properties which are it's the pound for pound so it's just like boxing or it's just like martial arts or it's just like any kind of weight class based um, event there's the who's the best overall and then there's the who's the best pound for pound so the material properties are how strong the material is on its own and when it's got when you've got a tendinopathy the material properties go down so the way our body responds to that is to produce more material. It's more crappy material, but if I can produce enough of it, it's going to give me the strength I need in order to resist my body weight. So that's why you get this big old lump on your Achilles, because even though your, your tissue isn't good, we can put more there. And that's why you end up getting that big nodule. Okay. Yeah. So now what we're trying to do is we're trying to improve the material properties of what's there. We're trying to make the material better pound for pound. And so now what, now that's what we're trying to get the load through to, to do. Okay. And so really when we look at the material, we want to make the material high quality tendon. And the way that we have to do that is we have to just get the cells to realize that there's a directionality here, that there's load coming through here. The worst thing we can do is take somebody with that kind of problem and immobilize it in a brace or do something like that, because without the load, it's never going to fix. Okay. Yeah, man. That's and basically just giving it the environment to do its its job. And yeah. I mean, because Jake Jake had a uh, you want to say your knee or your leg injury? Oh yeah, I had a um, a compound fracture at a trampoline okay. place. Yeah, and I snapped my I shattered my fibula in nine places and broke my tibia like right through the skin. And um, the the scar is actually pretty pretty hectic. It's like a big J. But yeah, yeah. it's the most most intense thing ever, and um, they they op yeah they operated through my knee. You know how they put a they hammer a rod down in through the tibia, and um, the the leg actually healed quicker than the knee did. I think they did some ligament damage in the knee, and um, it took like a good two years of like yeah. But remember, you were meant to have a, a cast on. For oh right, right, yeah, that's where you're going. That, that, yeah, <laughs> and started, you loaded it early. And yeah, I loaded it early, so I had a good coach. Um, it was just it was at the end of my um, I used to do professional bodyboarding. Do you know what bodyboarding is? Where you fly down? Yeah, so I did that at a professional level, and um, my coach at the time was like, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna get you actually loading your leg within five days." So um, I started doing like deadlifts and just lighting loading my leg really lightly, and then doing slow calf raises and things like that, and um. I went back to the, so I was surfing again, like properly in four months, but I went back to the the physio guy and the doctor and um, he was like, man, that's the quickest rehab I've seen for an injury of this thing. And I was like, and then people were saying to keep it in the boot. They really wanted me to keep it in a boot and keep it uh, stale, you know, for, for eight weeks. And I knew that I was just like, ah, oh, some movement's got to be good. You know what I mean? And I knew like, got to give it to him because I had a rod in there. I knew that it wasn't going to snap again or there wasn't going to be like anything like that. So yeah, yeah it's really, really cool, really fast. But I mean, it did take, yeah. did take two years to run again. Um, right. I and I still and don't did they leave story. the Did they leave the rod in there? 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had the, the I had the choice whether to yeah leave the rod in and and the pins, and I just thought like I don't really want to have another traumatic uh, operation through the knee. I didn't like that. Maybe yeah. if they had it went through the this front, but uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing the only thing to keep in mind is that the bone that's around that is going to get weaker just because it is mm. stress shielded. Because all the all the as you know the load is going through the internal fixation. Yes. Mm. And. And I know this as well because my wife has an internal fixator because she had a, a dreaded black line in one of her shins. And so what happens is that now as you go to load the leg, what would normally be a stimulus for those bone cells to, to, to maintain their calcium phosphate and to maintain their thickness and density and strength, it's now going through the rod to some degree. And as the rod yeah. begins to get a little bit more brittle, it, it will, you know, it has the capacity, it has the potential to come back and give you some some problems later it's totally it's totally fine you can deal with it at whatever point but it is one of those things where this is where we where we get the concept of stress shielding is from the bone field because what happens you know people who get a hip replacement after about 10 years they have to go back in and replace that hip and the reason isn't because the metal is gone bad the reason is that the bone around the metal has died because there's no load going through it. And so what you get is you get movement of the of the bone within the bone or sorry, the 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 metal, the prosthesis within the bone, because the area of bone around it has died. And so when you go in to do the replacement, it actually a lot of times just pulls straight out because there's no attachment to it anymore, because all of the stuff that was attached to it is going to have been stress shielded not getting the signal to keep the bone there so it doesn't necessarily grow as as strong as it should in the recovery process yeah, so so if you do get <laughs> if you do as you get a little bit older you start to feel more things associated with it it could just be that it, look the bone is still a little bit weaker yeah it's reformed all of that structure is probably really good it's just now it's not necessarily built to take the load yeah well, it feels like that too like everything involved with my right leg is um like the spring has gone like i used to be very athletic like i could i was a sprinter i could you know run really quick and you know I'm very agile and now like my right leg is just like it just feels dead man it's just like like I, i'm trying to do work on like bouncing like heaps of plyometrics and stuff like that even skipping's a bit of a challenge on that right leg sure. so yeah. um jeff have has it been any because when you, when you were talking earlier about the force sort of moving laterally and then down towards the tendon. Has there been any research in in how, like, say, dry fascia would, would change the force production of someone? You know, we think most people do have, like, we're in a Western world, sitting down all the time, moving our body. Mm -hmm. I can assume, you know, I, I, don't, I know the first time I jumped on my foam roller how painful it was, and now it's sort of nothing really stands out bad anymore. But I'm wondering if that's more of a neural thing or is it is changing or... Uh, has there been any any research into that? Well, so there's been very little, to be honest, very little research into fascia because it is much more difficult for people to understand. Okay. And when things are difficult for people to measure and understand, people stay away from it and they say, oh, this traditional medicine or this is... But the reality is that fascia is very, very important. And when you say they're, oh, is this a neural thing? Well, remember that the, the fascia is incredibly innervated. And so the, there's a lot of nerves that that run with the fascia. There's a lot of a lot of the reason why when we have, say, a knot or something that's there, the reason that that's 
painful is not necessarily because we're impinging the movement of two muscles, but a lot of times we're compressing a nerve and that's giving us tonic signal down to a muscle that's then giving us that kind of feeling where we're tight or we're painful or we've got that. Not enough work is done in fascia. What we know about fascia is that the stimulus for fascia, again, what the fascia is supposed to do, it's supposed to enwrap different tissues that are supposed to then be able to slide past each other. And that sliding is facilitated by at the level of the outer level of the fascia, there are proteins that are a lot like those proteoglycans that we get in, in cartilage. And this is one of the better named proteins. It's called lubricin because what it does is it lubricates that movement between the different fascial layers. So if you were to take out a, a muscle and you were to look at the fascia on the outside and you were to look to say, where's lubricin and where's hyaluron? These proteins that hold a lot of water, they're right on the outside. And the way that they get there is we get compression and shear. Okay, when we talk about making a tendon, what we want is we want tensional load. If I pull two, two things away from each other and there's, some, there's an elastic band in between, I'm going to get tension on that elastic band. If I instead take a sponge and I compress it and push in on it, that's the compressive load. That's another load that we get in our musculoskeletal system all the time. And that's an obvious one. We get that in our cartilages and all of those areas where we get compression. Those cells really take on the phenotype of a cartilage. Where we get shear, where we get this compression and sliding, we get this, we get these extra proteoglycans, we get lubricin, we get, we get hyaluron, which are again, proteins that are proteoglycans. So they have these big sugary bits. Lubricin is really cool because it sticks on the, on the edge of the, on the edge of the, the, the layer, and it actually holds water in the part that sticks out into the environment. And so what it's doing is it's holding that fluid there so that those two areas can slide past each other. When we don't get proper movement or sufficient movement of these fascial layers, now what's going to happen is that the lubricin might still be there, but now because it's not moving, it's just two layers that are, are stuck to each other. And so now if I put two things together for a long period of time, all they're going to do is they're going to start to adhere. So if I, if I, and I do this, I've done this like two weeks ago, I got a, a, uh, an ACL and a, and a human tendon from somebody who's going through ACL reconstructive surgery. So I go into the laboratory and I'm chopping it up to isolate the cells. If I leave it there for 10 minutes and I go pick up the tiniest little bit of the tendon and I hold it up, the whole thing sticks together. Wow. Because That's collagen is extraordinarily huh. sticky. Wow. It sticks together. If I want to make a collagen gel, all I have to do is put in the molecules, change the pH, bang, there's a collagen gel there. And it forms immediately and it forms this structure that is mechanically really strong. So if I'm sitting on my butt all day and I'm not moving, everything is just sitting there. And so if it takes 10 minutes for me to be able to stick my collagen that's in that human tendon, it's going to stick together as one unit again. Same thing's going to happen when I stick those two fascial layers together. Eventually, there's going to be adhesions form, and, and those are going to get stronger over time. And the result is that when I go to move, now my movement is these two things that are supposed to slide don't slide anymore. And so the way that you do it with your, your foam roller is you hold one of them with compression, and you slide the other one past it. And so now you get compression because you're pushing in, and you're moving your joint, 
and that's sliding the other muscle past it. Now what you're doing is you're getting, okay, the, you're getting that signal. We need that lubricant in there so that we can lubricate this interface between these muscles. Yeah. Again, those yeah, types yeah. of things are really underappreciated. Yeah, yeah. Really? I've seen it. I've seen it heaps. It's anecdotal. I've seen how much it can yeah. do do for people. Like there was, I had one guy here was on painkillers for uh, three, two, two years um, for his left hip problem, and his left, 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 his left femur was so externally rotated, and his labrum was feeling the brunt of it. Every step he took, his left femur was levering in front of his out of his acetabulum into his labrum, and there was the trigger point of his life. On his um, on his <laughs> uh, posterior fibers of his glute mid, and it was literally when when he got the ball in there, it was like a, a rush for him. But when he stood back up, it immediately his leg position changed, and he he come back in two weeks later and told me it was it was of all painkillers in for the last two weeks, and obviously build strength on that and everything. So, but the fact that he was off pain, that that's what really showed me the power of it from a from that perspective. And then uh, I just I just think it's so underappreciated but when i hear because you hear a lot of people come out and talk about how it doesn't do anything and stuff but then you hear you break it down to that level yeah, exactly um when you know it's, it's it's matter you know it's two things touching each other like it's, it's yeah it's not it's not magic you know um yeah exactly yeah and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to see if we can reproduce this using our engineered ligament models where normally we load them in tension we're now loading them in compression and we're loading them in shear with the idea that what we're going to do is we're going to basically produce three different types of connective tissue. In one case, we're going to produce a connective tissue that's much more tendon-like in another, it's more cartilage-like and in the third, it's going to be more fascial-like. Wow. So okay. if we can get to that point where we can show that, then people are going to be much more understanding that this is a real phys physical and physiological process. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, Amazing. That's 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 amazing. <laughs> yeah. Hearing all those little details in, in your body, and it makes me start just getting curious as soon as I hear it. Like I've just found from experience, a lot of the uh, Achilles tendonitis people have had in here somewhat overweight, and it makes me start thinking about and and they have like big calves. A lot of the time they have big calves, and and then hearing you talk about that, how it's like loading to protect, possibly loading to protect the uh, the tendon. And then it makes me think about wonder how these dried adhere spots affect the tendon. Would that affect then the pull from the muscle onto the tendon? It's going to affect the directionality to some degree, yeah. Because basically, as you if you're constrained in one spot, that means that the angle that the pull is going to come from is going to be different than the normal native right. tissue. Right. The other thing that's happening again is that. One of the things we've got a paper that's in review right now that basically shows really definitively that if we increase inflammatory signals, so inflammatory cytokines, which are just little hormones that come from inflammatory cells, basically what we get is we get a dose-dependent decrease in, in collagen in the tendon, and we get a dose-dependent decrease in the function. Wow. And so again, this comes back to these ideas that some of... A, you know, again, a lot of what our modern life is is doing is is doing things that generate inflammation. Mm. It's overeating, inactivity, you know, these metabolic disease type of situations where the inflammatory signal goes up, and as that happens, we think, oh, yeah, it's it's going to have the 
it's the effects on things like our musculoskeletal system that is massively underappreciated. So the idea that that having an inflamed uh, individual is going to affect their their muscle function and their injury rate from exercise or their tendon function. And if you've got a if you've got a muscle that doesn't work well and you've got a tendon that doesn't work well, and then what do our doctors do or what are our, what do what do we do is we look at somebody who is maybe suffering from these and it's not hard to see it's maybe somebody who's overweight or have struggling with this and then you say oh, well they should just exercise. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't think that's the first person who's ever said that and yeah, they go and they try it and what happens is they get hurt and they suffer through a lot of pain and they've got a lot of other issues that are based on this this whole global problem that this individual is going through, which has already made it so that the tissues are actually much more injury prone. Mm. And so they're not getting a signal to adapt. So I tell my students that, look, if I were to give you a hundred, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars to invest in your home, if your home's in great condition, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to add a room. I'm going to put on this. I'm going to do, so you're going to add to your house. But if I give you that same amount of money, the day after this huge branch comes down and smashes through your home, what are you going to do? Well, you have to use that same amount of money to repair the house. Mm -hmm. So you're not making your house bigger. You're not making your muscle bigger. What you're doing is you're repairing all the damage you've produced. And if every time you go to do exercise, instead of getting a stimulus that's going to make your muscle bigger or make it more endurance, you get a muscle that's now injured. That's really a different phenotype that I don't blame somebody who's in a chronic inflammatory state who goes and tries to exercise. Exercise is an inflammatory stimulus. So now we've got all of these inflammatory signals, and then we're going to add an extra one on top of that. And now what's going to happen is the muscle and the tendon are going to get even more injured to some degree. And so what we have to do is we have to come up with strategies that are much more understanding that you know people sit and they watch the things like the biggest loser and they're like oh all they had to do was go no come on you're gonna put somebody and you're gonna have them go three hours come on what we do is we take old people we take who are have a higher rate of inflammation we take people who are diabetic who have heart disease who have all of these inflammatory conditions and what do we do we slowly bring them in and we slowly begin to ramp up their program because just like Anybody who's unaccustomed to an exercise, the more unaccustomed you are, the more likely you're going to get muscle injury because, again, your muscle isn't ready for it. So what we do is we do all kinds of preliminary things to prepare them. We try and get the environment more amenable to adapting positively to exercise. And now what we're going to do is we're going to get them, once we can get them up and off of that baseline, off of that very low level, now what we're going to see is they're going to accelerate and they're going to have huge responses. The problem is we don't do that. We say, oh, you just need to exercise. What happens? They go out and they do a lot of exercise. And then they get injured and they get sore and they get all of these things and they never want to go back again. I don't blame them. Their body is is really not ready for that type of activity. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and I've seen it like uh, people that are just have no range of motion and all of a sudden they, they clean some stuff up and they they everything moves better, you know? And that's, that's a common, that's a common theme. Um, when they could be, but it also happens like 
when you broke your leg in trampoline, the first thing you want to do is get back and do as much as you possibly can. Yeah. And so you probably overdid it massively and were really, really sore after, because when you came back, when you were first allowed to do it, when my wife did hers, they had her in a brace and they said, you can't do anything. And then they took off the brace and said, okay, you've got a rod in your leg. You're all set. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> so what did she do? She went out and ran like four or five miles and then she came oh, back. She was injured oh, again. Yeah. So your body is not ready for that when you've got an inflammatory situation inactivities and inflammatory situation so, so again it's not it's not i'm not harping on this one kind of component but it is really important for understanding how these structures yeah. are being globally regulated so you're saying that how she went for a, a run and if we have we have say what you've seen say eight to to ten minutes or so of adaptation then go for a 10 minute run often yeah yeah mm -hmm. or just dance for eight minutes like just yeah. sit there put on two of your favorite songs and bop around for it's yes. you don't have to do anything that's going to be you know realistically when you go from very little or almost nothing to anything it's a huge jump mm -hmm. so what you do is you look for little ways that you can get let's get eight minutes of activity i can put two songs on we're going to dance you know let's look at ways to do this that that are not going to be you know, that aren't going to be a way that people are like, oh, that's punishment, you know. So, yeah, I look for ways that are going to be more enjoyable to get a small exercise snack in. And that exercise snack is going to give me enough to give me some signals to go through this tissue. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give it rest. And then I'm going to give it another exercise snack, maybe a little bit bigger, but I'm going to give it that exercise snack. And so by doing that, I'm getting more signals into the system without getting as much of the negative component. Okay. So, so the idea here is that if 10 minutes is the minimal effective dose of exercise, then everything for connective tissues like tendons, ligaments, bones, cartilage, then everything over that isn't giving me a signal to adapt, but it's giving me the potential to break down. Okay. Mm -hmm. We've all gone into those like furniture stores where they have an automatic machine that's sitting down on the couch and it does that tens of thousands of times, or you've all seen your jeans, your favorite pair of jeans and how the knee wears out over time. And you look at, and you'll, because that's where we're loading. And because that tissue isn't regenerating, we're getting that mechanical damage and is deteriorating. Well, that's the mechanical damage component. That's one part of exercise, mechanical damage. The other part is the actual signal. And so if we get the signal by 10 minutes and the mechanical damage is kind of consistent early, and then it actually increases as we get tired, because again, the tissue actually fatigues. The longer I go, the more mechanical damage I get, but the, I don't get any greater signal. And so you can actually take advantage of this. And, and the best example is Camille Heron, who's probably one of the best distance runners in the world. She runs like 100 miles. She's like the world record holder in the 24-hour. She ran like an average pace of seven and a half minutes for 24 hours. Whoa. I can't, it blows my mind. But, but she also has a master's degree in bone mechanobiology. And so what she realized is that, okay, bone acts the same way. So instead, of, she doesn't do any single huge long bouts except when she actually competes. What she does is she does a bout in the morning. And then about six to eight hours later, she does about in the evening. 
And what she gets is she gets the same total amount of time that all the other runners get. But now she gets two signals to her tendons, her ligaments, and her cartilage to adapt. And she gets the same amount of signal for the muscle because the muscle and the cardiac muscle, they are just how long are we going? We'll, we'll adapt as long as we go. But what she's done by splitting her sessions into two, she's actually got twice the adaptive signal for all of these connective tissues. And her injury rate, will, you know, we'll touch wood here, but her injury rate's been much better than most people. And so if we can take advantage of those types of ideas where we're going to do these small snacks, where we're going to get a signal without enough, of, uh, without enough load to cause damage, and then I'm going to do that again, say, eight hours or 10 hours later. Now what I've got is I've got a way that I can start building that individual back up. And now what we're going to do is we can do that for a while. And then all we do is to get the cardiovascular load and the muscle load, we just increase one of those signals, the time that we're exercising or the intensity that we're exercising. And now what we've got is we've got the, we've got the signals for both the connective tissues to adapt health in a healthy way. And we're getting the cardiovascular and muscular adaptations that we're looking for. And so if I'm looking to take somebody from, from being completely inactive or completely under, under, underutilized to back to where they can be at their best, that's the kind of way that I'm going to do it. I'm going to use these small little snacks and I'm going to build those snacks and then I'm going to make the intensity and the duration go up over time. Man, that's, that's absolute gold. I'm just, that's, uh. It's like the Russian Dagestani wrestlers. That's, that's basically <laughs> yeah. what they do. Ligamental. They do, they do less, but they do more. They go, we, yeah. we wake up, we train, then we, we eat, we sleep, and then we train again. But they do, that's apparently the difference between them and the American wrestlers. They do less, but more frequently. Mm. So I train. That's cool to hear that. <laughs> and, and just because Australia is so huge on coffee, and I remember hearing you talk about in a, in, in a podcast once about caffeine and its effects on collagen and you're the only person I've ever heard talk about that so i'd love to just hear what um what you have to say about that and people yeah so it's a it's a really interesting thing so so again a lot of people like their dietary collagen with their coffee in the morning and that's totally is totally fine what what we what we found is that when we take our little engineered ligaments and we put caffeine into them and the caffeine is there 24 hours a day the whole time so it's it's not physiological what we can do is a dose dependent decrease in collagen content and, and mechanics. So we know that caffeine, if it's high enough levels in the tendon is going to cause a, a detrimental effect. We then went on to do a study in mice where we, where you had two groups of mice. Actually, we have four groups of mice. We gave two sets of mice running wheels and they love to run. So they'll jump in the running wheel and they'll run. They, they can do about five kilometers a night. So, so they really love to run. Mm -hmm. Then we gave, we did a separate, uh, another two groups where we gave them the sedentary of their wheel, and then we gave them caffeine in their water. And the amount of caffeine was to get them the, about what you would see in somebody who drank four to five cups of coffee a day. So, so what we found is that when they ran on the running wheel and we took them, we did like four weeks of this, we take them out and we measure, we, we measured the Basically, we started with the sizes of the muscles. One of the interesting things is the soleus muscle, which is the primary muscle that, that, that you use, that we use, that they use when you run. That got bigger with the exercise with the running wheel. When they had the running wheel plus the caffeine, it, it didn't get as big. So, so again, that's something that's been observed. 
We see it in, in cell culture. When we treat with caffeine, muscle protein synthesis goes down. But again, most of the time, we're not drinking five to six cups of coffee, so we don't get the level of caffeine necessary to get that effect in the muscle. We get the effect that happens in the brain quite readily. That's much easier to get. The level that we need to get to the muscle is going to be a little bit higher. And what we saw was a small decrease in the in the in the stiffness in the collagen content of the of the Achilles. Again, if you're an elite athlete who drinks six cups of coffee a day, we might say let's let's dial that back a little bit. Um, but if you're most of us who aren't gonna who are gonna have one or two cups of coffee, we're not gonna be needing the elite performance. It's not really going to make a huge difference. We still saw an improvement in in mechanics of the Achilles. We still saw a small increase in the collagen content of the Achilles. It just wasn't as much as would happen without the without the caffeine. Yeah, man, that's that's amazing though. That's that's uh, cool to hear for the people that pump twenty cups. Because I used to work in the mines. There was a dude out there used to do twenty cups of coffee a day, and they're out there, you know, and they and oh, they yeah. like they got no collagen whenever you see them too. Yeah, their skin is not is not in the greatest condition. I'm gonna get. Yeah, but, and- yeah. So. So again, that's another one of those things that also has the potential to make it a little bit more injury prone and other things, because again, as we decrease collagen turnover, the matrix in the muscle is, is got a collagen component. The tendons have a collagen component. As I said, in our study, we didn't see the increase in muscle in, in, um, in, uh, sorry, muscle mass of the soleus to the same degree with the caffeine. So again, we're getting these differences, which are indicative of it can have an effect mm. and if you need to have all of your muscle be at the best shape yeah we're going to limit that for you we're going to try and get you to decrease that just because that's going to decrease your injury rate it's probably going to have a, a knock-on effect of performance and one even though you know yes we're going to use it to improve your performance when you come to competition because caffeine will always improve your performance we're going to be a little bit more cautious with that and again if I don't need to use it for my pre-workout, I'm not going to use it for my pre-workout because if I'm taking a pre-workout that's hugely high in caffeine and then I'm driving all the blood to the muscles that I worked, but maybe the blood has got lots of caffeine and that's now going to decrease some of the adaptation, I might do that same training bout, but get less of a stimulus to adapt. And so again, yeah. we just have to be a little bit careful. Yeah. Um, and man, I know, one last thing, just... Just to touch on like, because for the gelatin and collagen, because I know the people would love to hear is like the amount that you saw to see a difference in, in collagen synthesis, the amount someone would have to take head with their, with their vitamin C. Right. So, so we, we did a, a study where we looked at five and 15 grams of gelatin with Greg Shaw down there at the uh, English Institute, or sorry, Australian Institute of Sport. And the 15 gave us a, a nice effect, a nice collagen um, increase in collagen synthesis in people. Um, there's more recent work. So Luke Van Loon, who's the laboratory I'm in now in Holland, he hasn't shown as big of an effect with so 20 to 30 grams of, collag- of collagen. He's using very different ways of measuring. And then there's, an, there's a group in England who have done really heavy whole body resistance exercise with either 15 or 30 grams. And they see the 30 grams is giving them a benefit, kind of a dose response where the 30 is bigger than nothing. The 15 shows a tendency to be bigger than nothing, but it's not quite as much as the 30 either. 
So, so it does look like if you're bigger and you use more muscle mass, you might need more, uh, a higher collagen dose. Mm -hmm. We don't see any difference between collagen peptides or gelatin or what, whatever. So you don't have to spend like goo gobs more money to try and get some fancy kind of collagen. We don't, we're, we're not looking for collagen two versus three versus one. Those things don't really matter because you take in a collagen protein and you break it down into amino acids and that those amino acids are going to be one third of them are going to be glycine. You know, another third are going to be proline or hydroxyproline that it's, you're not going to get like a, a long piece that your body's going to say, Oh, that's a type two collagen. Molecule. There's not going to be a long enough piece that you digest and absorb. Right. So the, the type doesn't really matter. What seems, what we think really is important is you don't want to get a bone-based collagen. And the reason we say that is because all mammals, including ourselves, including cows, including even, even avians, they store their heavy metals in their bones. That's a way to keep the, the heavy metal toxicity low. So when I, if I take the bones and I now, you know, boil them in order to get the collagen, I'm also going to potentially get a higher dose of lead and other heavy metals. And so you can get a little bit of heavy metal toxicity. There's a couple of papers in food-based journals that show that bone broth is much higher in, in lead than other forms of, of collagen. So what we try and do is we try and encourage people to get a skin-based source. And there's fish skin and then there's, there's also skin, uh, there's bovine skin-based collagens. Yeah. Those ones are the ones that we tend to, we tend to encourage people to take because when you're taking and you're taking collagen on a, on a somewhat daily basis as a way to, to kind of maintain collagen synthesis rates. You don't want to be taking something that has a heavy lead dose every mm. single day, because that's also going to have negative connotations. Mm. Yeah, man, that's, that's cool. It's so many, it's so many points then that was gold. And I'm, I could, I could talk to you for bloody hours about this shit and I love it, but, um, but. <laughs> I know you gotta you gotta get on and and we'll we'll let you go. But man, that was so so cool, so educational, and and again, everyone can relate. And you you managed to tell us in a way that everyone can relate because we all have a human body and we all want to be better. Mm. So it's just like yeah, yeah. It's just really appreciate you coming on and um yeah, just we're, we're what cheering from afar. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's great. So where can people kind of come and, um, you know, check more of your kind of stuff out? Yeah. So, so, um, what, what I, I don't use Twitter or X as much as I used <laughs> to, but I still, when we have new papers, I still do announce them there and I still do tell people. And when I see something that's really cool for people, I'll post it there as well. So, so that's an easy place. I'm just at muscle science. I got, yeah. I started very early, so I got a good, I got a good handle. No, um, yeah. So, so, you know, people can follow it there, um, you know, and one of the things I encourage people is look, you know, uh, we make all of our journal articles publicly available. So we pay almost $3,000 for every journal article so that it's, so that it's open access. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is everybody should be able to just go on to Google and search. And then if you, if there's an article that they want, they should be able to view it without paying anything themselves. If there's ever anything that they wanted to see that is behind a paywall, all you have to do is email me um, at my ucdavis.edu account and I will send you whatever paper because, you know, I always think it's most important for people to actually see the, the data themselves sometimes because people get into this, 
oh, but this person said this and you say that and that. Well, here's the data. And I, you know, I have nothing to do. We just collect the data and we try and we try and uh, we try and analyze it and make it so that there's a that it, the story that the data tells is consistent with the story that all the rest of the data that's out there tells us. And so for people to really make good decisions, they have to actually see some of it themselves. And so, so if there's ever anything where you're like, oh, I wish I could read that paper, just send me an email, I'll send it to them. Yeah, awesome, awesome man. Thank awesome. you so much. Yeah, thanks for your time today. Yeah, appreciate yeah. it. Worries. Do you, do you happen to have Instagram at all? I, I should, is that what I should be doing? <laughs> what you should be doing, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll be posting reels from this and it'd be cool to yeah. tag in it, you know, so people can can have a look at it. Perfect. Yeah, so, so I'll go there and I'll see because, you know, <laughs> yeah. I have a 16-year-old daughter and I, she's, she's just said that she has to do it. So so maybe yeah. I'll, we'll do it together. I can yeah, follow yeah. her and see what she's up to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, man. We'll appreciate it. Good good chatting to you. Yeah, nice to meet you, mate. Right. Good to talk to you. Take care. Thanks Bye. a lot. Bye now.